What was coming to my mind as I was sitting there is, you shall soar on eagles' wings. I felt like I was soaring as you were uh, ministering to us, so thank you. I also feel bad because we go from that to this, so <laughs> I apologize. I'm really honored to be here. Uh, Pastor Chris and I have been knowing each other for, uh, I think, 21 years now, something like that, 22 years maybe. Um, First of all, I bring greetings from New Community Covenant Church in Chicago. Uh, we don't have a pastor right now, so pray for us as we're looking. Otherwise, I would bring greetings from our pastor. I was so blessed when I got this book several years ago. Uh, it's by uh, someone named Pastor Chris Williamson. One but not the same, God's diverse kingdom come. Now, I don't want to say I'm special or anything, but it is autographed by Pastor Chris. <laughs> Um, what blew me away here was that I've been a Christian for a while, but never realized how important this concept of kingdom was. Pastor Chris starts the book by saying, uh, you can tell somebody's heart by what they talk about. And when you look at what Jesus talks about, he just keeps talking about God's kingdom, God's kingdom, God's kingdom. So we have to understand what that is. And just before we get into that, i got to say, First Lady Darina, um, I was blessed last night. You know she's an amazing author. I had three copies of her latest book, and uh, she signed them for me. <laughs> I have um, multiracial grandchildren, and those books are such a blessing. It's unbelievable. So thank you for the work you do. It's a real ministry. So Pastor Chris says the kingdom of God is the reign and then the reach of God. So it's both a place that you live, and it's a way to live. Kind of amazing. So what I want to ask us to do is if we could just stand for a short reading. We're going to read out of John 8, 31 and 32. John 8, 31 and 32. And I'm actually going to read two different versions because they're just slightly different and I think it matters for what we'll talk about today. So John 8, 31 through 32. I'll first read the English Standard Version and then the New International Version. So if you don't have either... Just uh, hang in there. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then the NIV, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Thank you. So today we're going to do exactly that. We're going to be disciples by abiding in God's word, holding to his teachings. And we're going to, in that exercise, come to see truth, not from human understanding, but as God intended us to see it. I think that we'll find that as we understand and accept this truth, that we will be literally and figuratively freed. So we're going to dive in. Now, here's a strange thing. I'm going to preach from a book that probably rarely is. I don't know if you've ever preached on Philemon. Maybe so. Philemon is the third shortest book in the Bible. It is 335 words in the Greek. But it's also the most misunderstood Bible, uh, book in the Bible. So that's why we're going to focus on it. Uh, it's been wrongly interpreted for centuries and used for very disastrous results. So... What we want to do today is ask, what is the truth of the book Philemon, and how does that set us free? 
In other words, how is the truth of Philemon meant to build the kingdom of God? And I'm going to argue that the interpretation that we give to it does not build the kingdom of God. So we're going to give it the more appropriate interpretation. So if you could turn, we're not going to ask you to stand, but if you could find Philemon. Now, um, it's a difficult book to find because it's so short. So I'll give you a little time and I'll talk about where it might be. If you're going to use a printed Bible, it's on page 1194. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, well, that's just my Bible, but you know. <laughs> uh, in the modern world, right, we can just pull it up on here, so you can do that. If you are using the printed Bible, maybe the best way is to go from the back to where it is. It's the 10th from the last book. So you got Revelation, and then you got this little book, Jude. Then you got three Johns, two Peters, a James, and a Hebrews. And then after, right before Hebrews, there's Philemon. I'm stalling so that you can find it. <laughs> all right, all right. So let me read, uh, read that. Now, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 21, so I'm going to skip the goodbyes kind of thing. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. So right away, the author is Paul, without, uh, without doubt, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul's actually in prison in Rome. It's about year 61, 62 A.D., so he's writing from prison in the big bad ruler of the world, Rome. Who's he writing to? To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, and also Apphia, that's his wife, our sister, and Archippus, who we believe is his child, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in, our, in your home. So, right, these are in the early days of Christianity, they met in homes, so this is the house church at Philemon's home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Paul says, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, talking to Philemon, because I hear about your love for all of his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has, been, has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than as a slave, as a dear brother. He is the very dear to me, but even dearer to you both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done anything wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. Interesting combination there. 
I do wish, brother, that I may have had some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Okay, there we shall stop. All right, so the most common interpretation of this book, indeed, literally, essentially, the only interpretation of this book is the slave flight interpretation, and it goes like this. Onesimus is a slave, says so. He's unhappy with his station in life, and so he flees, or he's escaped, he's run away. And on his way out the door, he stole from his master. He ended up in prison, and there he met Paul. Paul is asking his friend Philemon to give, to forgive, and then to reconcile, as Onesimus has changed, because... He's become a Christian. So Paul says, receive back your slave. And he's pleading, don't punish him. Don't punish him for escaping. Don't punish him for stealing from you. Receive him back. And although he'll stay a slave, recognize him also as a brother. Okay. And if he has whatever he's stolen, whatever he's cost the master, Paul says, I'll pay for it. Okay. So I'm going to help you to do the forgiving here. What do we take away in the interpretation here from this book? In other words, we do have to ask, of all the letters and everything written in those times, why was this small one-page letter to a singular person and family included in our Holy Scriptures? So that's what we're going to ask. So this book is understood in this interpretation to teach us about forgiveness and perhaps even reconciliation. Vital Christian values, to be sure. Philemon is a good man. Paul says he is. So Paul's appealing to that goodness, the moral purity, to, to forgive this escaped slave. Yes, Onesimus was deeply wrong, but he has changed, so receive him back, and that he can now serve you all the better now that he is a follower of Christ. Paul seems to foreshadow in verse 21 that Philemon will actually receive him and forgive him. As he says, I'm confident in your obedience. All right. So assuming he does as Paul asks, the hero in this interpretation is Philemon. Actually, after all, the book is named after him, right? Philemon is demonstrating to us how to be a mature Christian, how to actually practice the love of Christ. And so in this interpretation, that's why this book is included in the Bible. In preparation for today's messages, I did the following. I visited many, many online sites that do interpretation. I read the preface to Philemon in several different Bibles. I consulted commentaries. Every single one of them, this was the interpretation, slave flight interpretation. There's just one significant problem. It's not what this book is about at all. Now, I want to acknowledge Dr. Lewis Brogdon, who's a uh, professor at Baptist Seminary in Kentucky. Uh, so I'm drawing a lot on his analysis. Uh, and so thank you to him, who's done some great work. Here's the issue with the runaway slave interpretation. Let's begin with the most basic of all. Nowhere does it say he ran away. It never says that. So how did we decide that that's what he did? All right. And a couple of other things that go along with this. If he had run away as a slave, he would have been illegal. And if he was caught, he would not have been sent to prison. He would have been returned to Philemon. So how did he end up in prison with Paul? 
Second, if Paul wanted Onesimus to be received well by Philemon as a runaway slave, we would expect words either from Onesimus himself or through Paul expressing regret for having done what he had done. But we get nothing like that. No asking of forgiveness, no such thing is mentioned. If he ran away, we would expect a motive to be given, why he had done it and why he now was repentant. But again, no hint of that whatsoever. Think about this. Paul is a prisoner in Rome. Onesimus is a slave in a place called Colossae. They're 1,300 miles away. Now, he didn't get on a plane in 61 AD and fly to Rome. So if he was running away as a slave, it's probably zero probability he would end up in Rome. It'd be the last place you would go if you are illegal to the heart of where everything is, uh, you know, the police state. And yet somehow we're supposed to believe that he not only ran away, he traveled 1,300 miles and he found Paul and he hung out with Paul in prison. Somehow, some way. Really not possible. Also, Onesimus is mentioned in another book of the Bible, Colossians. Colossians 4, 7 through 9. So it's pretty interesting what it says here. So Paul is sending two people to bring this letter to the Colossians. Okay? One is named Tychicus and the other Onesimus. And in that letter, in Colossians 4, 7, 9, he says this about Onesimus. He is our faithful and dear brother. He is one of us. That is who Onesimus is. And then Paul says that Tychicus and Onesimus are going to tell the believers in Colossae everything that's been happening in Rome. So he's entrusted this incredible message to them. Really, an escaped thieving slave, he's going to give him this. If he escaped, he would have to go directly back to Philemon. He wouldn't be able to go traveling among all the house churches in Colossae sharing the news and reading the letter, right? So here's what the problem is, right? It's not just that this dominant historical interpretation is wrong. It's what it's caused the mayhem in our society across time. So let me just point out a couple. And then we'll talk about, you know, what, what is the interpretation? Throughout history, major Christian interpreters have used this letter, and you can guess, <laughs> to justify slavery, to justify returning escaped slaves to their masters, and to argue that Christianity, its effect on slaves is to make better slaves. Church fathers have used this defense across time. Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, John Kelvin all use this letter to support slavery. The slave flight interpretation was instrumental in the U.S. when we had debates over the biblical sanction of slavery. It was concluded by some, by many, that had power. Slavery is justified because it is biblical. And also, we had the Fugitive Slave Act in the 1800s. They used this book as the evidence for why it too was biblical. If you escape, you must be returned to your master. So this is also then not only viewed as proof of God supporting slavery, but also used to indoctrinate American slaves, to show them that if they were going to be good Christians, they had to be good slaves. They could not run away. They had to follow the God-ordained order. So here's the truth. This book does not support slavery, but it's not agnostic about it either, as some people will try to argue. 
Paul is clearly saying to Philemon, free Onesimus. Let's look at how Paul describes Onesimus and compare that to the slave flight interpretation of his character and worth. I'm going to say, I'm going to read every single thing that Paul says about Onesimus. So verse 10, he says, he is my son. And he says it again, my son, useful to both you and to me. Verse 12, my very heart, helping me while I'm in chains. Verse 16, no longer a slave, but better than a slave, a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. If we look at what he says about Philemon, I'll just draw out a couple. Verse 8, I could order you to do what you ought to do. Verse 9, I appeal to you, welcome him. Verse 20, refresh my heart. That one's important because in verse 12, as we said, he says, Onesimus is my very heart. In verse 20, refresh my very heart. Refresh Onesimus. Give him a new status. Free him. Then finally, in verse 21, as we've mentioned, confident that you'll do this, confident in your obedience, I know you'll do even more than I ask. Not just free him, empower him. So what's the appropriate interpretation? I'll use two fancy words, but then we'll explain it. Exclusionary koinonia. Exclusionary koinonia is what this book is about. Koinonia is radical togetherness. It's Christian community as God intends it to be. So let's look at the facts. Philemon is a leader at the church of Colossae, benefiting many. Paul tells us that. Philemon owes his very salvation to Paul. Paul doesn't hesitate to point that out in Philemon. Because he owes his salvation to Paul, and Paul is in prison, Philemon wanted to help Paul because Paul needed help. But Philemon couldn't go because he's a leader in the church in Colossae. So what did he do? He sent his slave Onesimus, paying for him to go the 1,300 miles to be in house church with Paul and serve Paul while he's there. While he's there, Onesimus becomes a Christian under Paul's teaching, just like Philemon had been. Now his status changes. He's a follower of Christ. So the central question of the book is this. Why was Onesimus not a Christian under Philemon? It had to be under Paul. And the central issue then is this failure to deem certain people as useful, to see them as less than. This letter is actually correcting Philemon. It's not praising Philemon. He's buttering him up to, pray, to, to correct him, right? So this rebuke, this rebuke is something we see common in Scripture. It's, it's being rebuked for selective sharing of the gospel, for selective sharing of Christian koinonia. So God had to deal with Peter on this issue multiple times, multiple times. God had to deal with Barnabas on this issue. God had to deal with certain men associated with James on this issue. God had to deal with the church at Corinth on this issue. And in this short book, God through Paul is dealing with Philemon on this very issue. So we have a consistent biblical story. This book and this letter is about exclusionary koinonia, which God is working to stop. He's got to overcome this because he is building his kingdom, a new way of thinking. Religion back then is for a people group. And this new thing is it's for all people, right? It is not to be tribal, the very thing that we are still wrestling with, as you know. 
Now, to hammer home this point about Philemon wrongly limiting who gets the gospel, you have to know what the word, what the name Onesimus actually means. Onesimus means useful. So when Paul writes to Philemon that once he was not useful, now he is useful, he's saying, in effect, once you did not see Onesimus, now I am ordering you see Onesimus. See Onesimus as your equal, as a human being who has been gifted by God. That is what he's asking him to do. Stop the exclusion, no place for it in this new Christian church, this kingdom God is building. Okay, so in verses 4 through 7 then, what happens is, that's the buttering up section. It's nothing but praise for Philemon. You're all this, you're all this, you're all that. To get him ready for the two asks that he's going to do. Because you got the buttering up and then you get therefore. And remember, whenever you see therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. And the reason it's there for is that these two requests. One's explicit, one is implicit. Explicit request is verses 16 and 17. No longer is Onesimus a slave. Could it be clear that this is not about accepting slavery? No longer is a slave, excluded from fellowship, but as a beloved brother and friend. Jesus, our Lord, John 15, 15 says this. I no longer call you servants or slaves because a servant doesn't know what his master's business is. Instead, I call you friends. For everything I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. That's the new church. The implicit request to overcome the ungodly exclusionary koinonia and to fulfill what Paul is instructing, either Onesimus must be allowed to return to Paul as a free man, or he must just be freed altogether. Either one is what he's asking, but you've got to do one or the other, if not both. If Philemon believes Onesimus has done any wrong, get this, why is that verse in there? Because such actions, if he frees him, it will cost him money, right? This is a servant he doesn't have to pay that does his work. It's going to cost him some money. So Paul says, I'll cover that. If that's going to be your problem, if that's going to limit you from freeing Onesimus, then I'll pay that. Because the issue here is no longer a legal one, master-slave, but a spiritual one, brothers. All right, here's interesting. So what ended up happening? The Bible doesn't tell us what ended up happening. But other people wrote during those time, and we can piece it together. The best evidence is that Onesimus was released, he was freed, and get this, he eventually became the bishop of Ephesus. And we know that there was such a a bishop named that. It could be another Onesimus, right? But the descriptions of this Onesimus seem to match the descriptions of what Paul wrote. For example, Ignatius of Antioch, who was the bishop of Antioch, wrote about Onesimus in a letter referencing him 14 times in a letter he sent to the Ephesians. And he wrote, for example, I have received your whole multitude in the person of Onesimus, whose love passes utterance and who is moreover your bishop. Blessed is Christ that granted to you according to your deserving to have such a bishop. So the multiple people that mention Onesimus are consistent in the way that they describe him, including the way that Paul describes him. So this might be another reason why this letter is included in the canon. It's an inspirational story. It's a story of transformation. It's a story of hope. Get this. In the U.S., we had essentially the exact same thing happen. 
So, you may have heard of Richard Allen. Richard Allen is the founder of the AME Church, the first black denomination. He was born a slave in 1760. He became a Christian at age 17, and he soon became a minister and was eventually freed. But when he attempted in Philadelphia, in a predominantly white church at the time, to pray on his knees at the altar, he and Absalom Jones, his good friend, were literally picked up and dragged out. First, they were requested to get up and leave, that they're not allowed to be there to pray. White people could be there, right? But they couldn't be there. And so they were dragged out. So, at that moment, they proposed and they decided, we need to get rid of exclusionary koinonia. So we're going to start a whole new church where people will be welcome. And he became, eventually, the bishop of this denomination. So very much just like what happened with Onesimus. All right, so let me bring home then there's four larger view implications. Very short, but these, are, these matter. Like what are the implications we can take then if we have this new interpretation? First of all, koinonia is radical togetherness and mutuality. And when we have that, it disrupts worldly systems and social relations. It disrupts all the whole system of slavery and economics and beyond that, how humans relate to one another. So we have to, we have to acknowledge that. Koinonia is not just something we sing around a campfire. For the church to not do this, second point, it, to, to accept it is, is wrong, it's sinful, and unjust. When we accept these kind of systems, that's accommodation. Accommodation leads to great evil and suffering in the world. And the church can have no part of it. The church has had part of it. The church cannot have part in it. Third, reconciliation, the coming back together, is often not possible without structural change, real change. When reconciliation is misunderstood to be asking and receiving forgiveness, kind of one-on-one, -on -one, what that does to the marginalized is they have to continue to bear scars, and they're then silenced when no change happens. So in, if you take that from the clouds, what that would say is, if we have to interpret that I send back a slave and he apologizes and Philemon accepts that apology and then he goes back to his life as a slave, that's not reconciliation. Yeah, okay. Finally, fourth, the church is not called to save the world. The church is called to give witness to the gospel. The power is the gospel. Our power, our call, our charge is to witness to that. So this radical inclusion, this koinonia, the building of God's kingdom, that's our witness. And that's our work. So let me return to the, the, the verses that we started with, John 8, 31 through 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And then what happens? You'll know the truth. And then what happens? The truth will set you free. The truth of Philemon then, when it comes down to it, is this. The low shall rise. The marginalized shall be central. The forgotten shall be remembered. The despised shall be loved. That's the Christian message. Within the community of the followers of Christ, there is radical exclusion of sin so that there can be radical inclusion of each other for the purpose of mutually empowering each other, for uplifting us, and in so doing, we then become God's kingdom. We become the witness, 
And the truth indeed sets us free. Not only us, but it sets the world free. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. One more time. (laughs) We radically exclude sin. And when we do that, we are radically including what God says is our community. That radical inclusion of each other, mutual empowerment. If you are all in, those of you that were in Sunday school with me, we talked about the endless list of studies that show all of the positive benefits from people who attend church regularly, the health benefits, the psychological benefits. This is the empowerment of Christian koinonia, the community. God designed it to be that way. When we are that, when we are that, the world can't help but see that and wonder. The world is flailing about right now trying to find their identities, their purpose, and you can't do it apart from Christ. So we are here showing them the way. Thank you so much.